World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, John Prideaux, standing in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Palm oil finds its way into things we use every day, from pizza dough to shampoo. Palm oil production is also responsible for the loss of tropical forests in Indonesia and elsewhere. This is an old problem, and it's getting harder to fix. The revolting accusations leveled at Harvey Weinstein prompted many organizations to look at whether they have a problem with sexual harassment or have a culture that's just off-putting to women. This introspection has also reached the economics profession. Samaya Keynes investigates. First up, though. In a crowded field of Democratic presidential contenders, one candidate is receiving a disproportionate amount of attention from the media and money from his smitten supporters. So what could be a huge shakeup for the 2020 race, Beto O'Rourke has made his move. Former El Paso congressman Beto O'Rourke is officially running for president. O'Rourke gained national attention during the midterm elections last year. Known for being a big fundraiser. Shattering previous Senate records. After announcing that he was running for president last week, Beto O'Rourke garnered nearly $6 million in his first day. Despite having few concrete policy proposals or much political experience beyond a stint in the House of Representatives. The interconnected crises in our economy, our democracy, and our climate have never been greater. And they will either consume us or they will afford us the greatest opportunity to unleash the genius of the United States of America. He's taking on more senior lawmakers from his own party, such as Senators Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, and Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator who gave Hillary Clinton a run for her money in 2016. At a rally in State College, Pennsylvania on Tuesday, Beto O'Rourke's appeal was clearly obvious. I know he's big on climate change, gun control, basically all the progressive ideals that I agree with. The only way that Democrats are going to win this election is by putting forth something bold. And I think that Beto is the progressive candidate that can beat Trump. I bring you greetings, saludos, from El Paso, Texas. So why is a novice politician garnering so much attention? People say he is Kennedy-esque. And it's absolutely true that he's kind of tall and skinny and good-looking in a kind of toothy, preppy sort of way. And he is very, very charming. Joining us to talk about Beto O'Rourke is David Rennie, our former Washington bureau chief. In the old politics, uh, he doesn't tick many of the right boxes. He's, as you say, just a two-term House member. I think what he's really reflecting is the fact that Donald Trump showed that experience isn't what voters are necessarily looking for. And the other thing is we know that Donald Trump is historically an extraordinarily divisive president. And that means that someone in 2020 could do very, very well by being 
nothing at all like Donald Trump. So Beto O'Rourke is betting that the kind of not Donald Trump that America is looking for is this problem-solving, young, friendly, uh, not confrontational, not angry, bilingual Spanish-English, kind of squeaky clean, wholesome guy uh, with a big grin and young kids. And, it, you know, that's his pitch is to be the un-Donald Trump uh, who wants to get stuff fixed, who wants to work across party lines, uh, and who's kind of, who believes that politics is public service rather than partisan warfare. You mentioned that he's not exactly a centrist, but he's not from the left of the Democratic Party either, right? Particularly if you look at where the Democratic Party has shifted recently. That's right. So obviously using labels like left and right and centre at the moment is a mugs game because the centre of gravity of both political parties is moving around like a kind of, you know, jelly on a, on a hot tray. And the Democratic Party has moved way to the left in a very, very short number of months. And, you know, so Beto O'Rourke is definitely on the pro-business, pro-trade, be a bit cautious about picking fights on every culture war you can wing of the party. You know, there were Texas Democrats, old school Democrats, you know, 10, 20 years ago, who were pro-gun rights, anti-abortion, very socially conservative. He's not one of those. How important is his hometown El Paso to his political priorities? El Paso is an absolutely fascinating place. If you are a red meat eating Donald Trump supporter who has never been to El Paso, the thing that you think you know about Beto O'Rourke's hometown is that it's one of the most dangerous places in America because it's one of those border towns where literally the end of one city block, you get the security controls and the fences and the barbed wire and just a really a few yards across a little trickle, which is the, the river, is the town of Ciudad Juarez, which is a really, certainly in its day, a very, very violent Mexican town with a terrible problem with you know drug cartels fighting among themselves and a sky-high murder rate. El Paso is a very safe, quite conservative town, a lot of 50,000 ex-servicemen, tons of people have good jobs, which exist because of the border, not despite the border. And so he was trying to tap into a part of Texas politics, which in the old days, Texas Republicans used to sign on to, which was that making money and doing business and being economically pragmatic was much, much more sensible and smart than getting hysterical about the idea that the border was some kind of threat and the Hispanics were a threat. Though he's called Beto, it's actually a nickname from his childhood. He's actually Irish-American originally, Robert O'Rourke. But he's very, very comfortable in that pragmatic border Hispanic community where there's a strong pro-business element. Part of his appeal is that he's you know, rather handsome, he has his young family, he used to be in a band, all that stuff. Do you think that's fair? He's very charming. And is some of that calculated? I don't know. I mean, the last time that I spent time with him, we met in a coffee shop. I followed him around for a couple of days watching him do his stump speech to a whole bunch of very different audiences. He was very proud of the fact that he'd driven there in this new pickup truck. He'd chosen this pickup truck because it was built in El Paso or near El Paso. It was built in Texas. It was actually a Japanese truck, but he was cool with that. And you know, he was talking about he was going to visit all of these different very obscure bits of Texas that hadn't seen a Democrat in a long time. So it was very charming. It was a good story. It was also very self-conscious. He was able to describe why he was doing something interesting. He was very conscious of what he was doing and why that was a story. So he's very charming, very open, very easy to kind of get on with. But, you know, he's a politician. So he's definitely thinking about the story that you're taking away from his his anecdotes. 
There have been some Obama comparisons inevitably, I mean, including from some of our colleagues. Your successor as Lexington, James Astor, sometimes says about Beto that he has a knack of sounding more progressive than he in fact is, that is somewhat reminiscent of Barack Obama and is quite a useful uh, characteristic to have in a democratic primary. What do you make of those Obama comparisons? I think one difference is that when I followed Barack Obama on the campaign trail around for, for the 2012 election, He's very good at working a crowd, but at some level, he's got a kind of cat-like disdain for working the crowd, that Obama could never quite conceal the fact that it was almost as if he was horrified by his own ability to be charming. Beto O'Rourke seemed, maybe it was a different stage of his political career, but he seemed more at ease with the business of schmoozing people and being charming, less cat-like, a bit more kind of dog-like. Well, America's a nation of dog lovers, so that's not the worst thing for him. David, thank you very much. Thank you. palm oil industry has ballooned in recent years. In many ways, palm oil is a wondrous crop. It's highly efficient, producing between six and ten times more oil than similar crops like soybeans. It turns up in about half of all supermarket products, from pizza dough to lipstick. But there's a problem with palm oil. To produce palm oil, huge swathes of tropical forests are destroyed. This has had a devastating impact on endangered species like tigers and orangutans. Environmental organizations have been campaigning against deforestation caused by palm oil production. But what does this mean for the people who produce palm oil? So an oil palm plantation is basically a slightly kind of surreal place to be. Guy Scriven is Southeast Asia correspondent and recently visited a palm oil plantation in Indonesia. If you imagine yourself in an almost endless row of oil palms, which are about a couple of metres apart in long kind of continuous rows. And in and amongst the trees, there are uh, harvesters walking around with kind of 10 meter long scythes. And they're using them to cut off the fresh fruit bunches, which is the kind of bit of the oil palm that you need from uh, the very top of the trees. And they're these kind of large orange spiky things about the size of a rugby ball. And that's where the actual kind of palm oil fruit is. Guy, can you explain why demand for palm oil is so strong? What, what's palm oil used for? People reckon it's in about half of supermarket products. It turns up in loads of things from kind of pizza dough to ice cream. Some places, you know, in Indonesia, they use it as a kind of biofuel. So they mix it with petrol and you can, you can kind of run your car on it. It's incredibly versatile, which is partly why it's, you know, such a kind of popular vegetable oil. So the problem environmentally is that people are cutting down rainforest to plant oil palms. Why is it such a big deal? You know, if you're effectively replacing one set of trees with another set of trees, why is that such a problem? The problem is that the trees which are being replaced tend to be very dense rainforests. These are kind of very rich with various forms of life, potentially extinct creatures like orangutans famously and tigers, for instance, as well as kind of huge numbers of rare birds. The carbon emission problem is really at its worst in areas called peatlands. And, and these are kind of swampy bogs. They get drained and then burned, and it provides a kind of very cheap way of, of clearing huge amounts of trees, but also emits huge amounts of carbon dioxide. So you've been hanging out with some farmers in Sumatra who farm oil palms. Are they conscious that there's a problem here, or are they just delighted that they have a lot of buyers for their crop? 
They're basically aware that there is a problem connected with the environment. But, I mean, most of them have come from kind of very poor backgrounds where otherwise they would be kind of farming vegetables. And, and comparatively, farming palm oil gives them, a, gives them a much better livelihood and helps them have a kind of much more enjoyable life. And so the farmers I was talking to were, were extremely happy with kind of palm oil. And uh, they were telling me how now they could afford to buy much more land, they could afford to buy cars, they can send their children to university. They really kind of appreciate the developmental side of it. And, you know, our own kind of really vaguely aware of the kind of larger scale of environmental problems. Okay, so what are people trying to do at the moment to solve those problems, given that, as you explained, the incentives for the farmers all point in one direction? There are kind of two things going on. First, the industry is trying to kind of clean up their act. And the main platform for this is the kind of RSPO, which is the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And that is a process through which palm oil plantations get audited by an, by an independent auditor uh, who, who come around and, and kind of basically make sure that they're not chopping down trees and that they are uh, kind of disposing of, of, the, of the waste from kind of processing palm oil correctly um, and, and are basically kind of ticking various green boxes. This has been going on for kind of about over a decade now and there are various kind of criticisms with it. One is that the coverage is not very big. So I think only about 20% of the world's palm oil comes under this kind of RSPO certification system. And that's because the costs associated with signing up to the RSPO and getting the auditors in to make sure that everything is, is hunky-dory, that puts off lots of potential farmers who, who, who might otherwise join this programme. Uh, the other kind of big problem with the RSPO is that until very recently, at least, the rules were pretty lenient. So it kind of allowed some types of deforestation to take place. Arguably, the biggest problem with the RSPO system is that the demand for this kind of greener palm oil just really isn't there. So about half of RSPO palm oil basically doesn't get sold with the markup you'd hope that it would get it gets sold as the kind of normal bog-standard palm oil. And so the farmers who have paid and, and, and tried to make sure that they're as green as possible don't really see any benefit from it. That's partly related to basically who's buying the palm oil. So the biggest buyers are really kind of China, India and Pakistan. And there, there isn't really much of a market for kind of environmentally friendly goods. Could we get around these environmental problems by finding a substitute to palm oil? The problem with finding a substitute is that basically palm oil is actually a very efficient crop. On a kind of per hectare basis, it's maybe kind of, you know, six to ten times more efficient than something like soybean oil, uh, which means that for the amount of oil that you, you get from a hectare of uh, oil palm, you'd have to have six to ten times more soybeans to create the same amount of oil. So, so, I mean, in a sense, it is actually, you know, our best option. I mean, banning it would, would potentially cause even more kind of deforestation to take place. Guy, thank you. Thanks, John. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. 
The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The impact of the Me Too movement continues to be felt in white-collar workplaces. A survey published this week found evidence of mounting discrimination and harassment at economics faculties in prominent universities. Our U.S. economics editor, Samaya Keynes, talked to some of those women who've come forward with stories of discrimination and the people pushing for change. The American Economic Association, or the AEA, is one of the most powerful voices of the economics profession. It has surveyed over 9,000 of its members to find out what it's like being an economist. And it seems that some groups have a worse time than others. Nearly half of the women surveyed said that they had been treated unfairly or faced discrimination based on their sex, compared to 3% of men. They felt treated unfairly when it came to pay, promotion decisions, course evaluations, and academic service work. And if you look at the numbers, Economics is far behind other social sciences in terms of its gender diversity. Women make up around 30% of PhD students, and then that share drops as, as you go up to more senior positions. Women seem to find it harder to get to the top universities. And the big question is whether something is pushing them away. Could it be a problem with the climate or culture within economics? I'm Ava Nachbao and I am an economist. And I used to be an assistant professor in the economics department at Northwestern. And I've moved on and currently work as an economist at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Ava told me about her experiences within academia. She told me about her first ever presentation at an academic conference when she was in her third year of graduate school and about how a prominent researcher asked her, why is this an interesting question? As I stood there, I understood that he was missing my point, but I did not have the presence of mind to come up with the right comeback. Over time, I learned that this kind of aggressive questioning was quite normal in economics and accepted, and in fact cherished as a way to defend the intellectual purity of <laughs> the profession. I, I, I felt like in order to deal with the environment, I had to become really tough. In fact, I know I've been characterized many times as tough as nails. And for economists, that's a compliment. But for me, it was always bittersweet, because if when you become tough as nails as a woman, it turns out you kind of turn off people, <laughs> and, and including the, the very people who do the aggressive questioning. Ava's experiences are just one anecdote, but, but they resonate with worries that there are problems in the climate of economics. And economists have been responding to those worries in a way that they know best, with data. The AEA, for the first time on March 18th, published its climate survey. I asked its president and former chair of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, about the new data from the survey. There clearly were concerning findings. First, relating to economics culture and attitudes. Many women, for example, feel that their work is not as valued in economics as that of their male counterparts. Um, and they, they themselves are, are not uh, treated as respectfully as, as their male counterparts. 
Secondly, there is at least uh, perceptions, and I'm sure reality, of discrimination. Uh, many women believe that their promotions, their compensation, their publications uh, have been affected by their gender, that they receive less uh, favorable treatment in that respect. And of course, that's a serious problem. And, and very seriously, a small but meaningful number of women report uh, serious um, uh, harassment, uh, whether it's um, uh, sexist language or even uh, sexual assault, clearly unacceptable and fits into um, a general feeling that women are not as welcome in economics as they should be. Historically, the AEA has been a bare-bones organization that hasn't had that much hard power, but, but now they do really seem to be trying to tackle these issues. First, we were taking a number of steps to try to address the problems uh, perceived and actual of harassment discrimination. We created a code of conduct which emphasizes the importance of allowing everyone to participate freely and effectively in economics discussions and research. We've added a policy which prohibits any type of harassment discrimination and make that acceptance of that code of conduct and the policy on harassment discrimination a precondition for participating in any economics or AEA-sponsored activity or committee. The real change here, I think, is, is an awareness that there are problems and, and the sense that this should be a priority. We still need more evidence, more data on where the problems lie. And it could be that a better climate won't be enough to keep people like Ava around. She wasn't herself sure if she would have stayed in economics had there been more supportive people. She had the pull of her family, and, and she was drawn to more policy-relevant, collaborative work. But she might have. And the potential upside of all of these changes is that economics will become a more welcoming place for a more diverse group of people, and then maybe everyone will benefit, because the marketplace for ideas will be that bit more competitive. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12, 12 pounds. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.